Welcome, Seekers of Truth, coming to you from the edge of the known universe, better known as the Granite State, home of Betty and Barney Hill. Through the magic of electronic alchemy, a portal to another dimension has opened. You are about to make a metaphysical connection. This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Mike Williams, host of Sage of Quay Radio Show, joins us to discuss a controversial conspiracy theory that just won't go away. Mike presents a convincing argument based on years of research that the original Paul McCartney was decapitated in a car crash in 1966. He was replaced by an imposter named Bill Shepard, who continues to play the role to this day. We also discuss the pivotal role of the Tavistock Institute and the Masonic influence on this 50-year charade. As the saying goes, if you're going to tell a lie, make it a big one. Decide for yourself. All coming up next on The Metaphysical Connection, Episode 86. Just to introduce Mr. Mr. Mike Williams, um, apparently he is perhaps one of the, one of the experts on the conspiracy theory, or I like to say conspiracy fact, regarding um, Paul McCartney and his alleged death in the 1960s. And you you also host your own podcast or radio show, Mike. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I, I started actually with a blog going back, I guess it was 2010 or so, and um, around 2014, early 2014, I got into the radio piece of it. It's internet radio. I have a YouTube channel it's called Sage Aquay Radio, and uh, I've been doing both of those in parallel um, ever since. So um, I, I really like getting into conspiracy research. I like getting into the esoteric, um, the occult. I also love getting into the spiritual aspects of existence. So both the um, the blog and the radio show encompass all of those various types of uh, topics and paths. So, Mike, I want to I want to uh, ask you uh, before we get rolling on the on the topic du jour. Um, the name for your for your show where, where where does that come from? That's it's interesting. I, I looked up Quay. I guess that's a a kind of a dock or a wharf does that have anything to do with it or is that way off base <laughs> yeah no it doesn't have anything to do with it oh, it's, okay. um, yeah it's a very interesting story um i've been looking into alternative research for a long time and so i would talk to people about it and amongst friends and family so they would joke around with me in, in poking but in a nice way and they would say oh it's such sage advice or he's, he's such a sage he's looking into all of this stuff Right. And uh, so that's where the sage piece came. And then the Quay, Q-U-A-Y, is actually a part of um, a town that I live in. And so it was the, it became the sage of Quay. And when I first came up with the name, to be honest with you, I wasn't even sure that I liked it. But it just stuck. And so now I'm the sage of Quay. <laughs> that's well, how it happens. Well, it catches your attention. It makes it, you know, the first thing I thought of was, ooh, what does that mean, you know? I mean, yeah. I got the sage part is pretty clear but I, I didn't know where the quay came from but anyway that that's an interesting thing so um 
so our listeners, I, I'm having, I'm suspecting that after we get done with the show today, some of our listeners are going to want to connect to your to your show. Where where is it available? It's on YouTube, and I know I've watched a couple of your videos, um, particular to the uh, Paul's Dead controversy. But um, I I know you probably have a lot of other ones on there too. Yeah, the best way to contact me and to reach all of my media would be to go to my hub website, and it is Sage of Quay. Dot com. So sage, S-A-G-E of O-F-Q-U-A-Y dot com. If you go there, you'll be able to hit my YouTube channel, D2, BitChute, Mixcloud, and a bunch of other stuff, Twitter, and so on. Great. Okay. You got a lot of stuff going on, which is good. Um, so before we get going on the Paul aspect, which I think is enormously interesting, and, I, and I'll have to say... Um, and I think I'm, you're in the same category as me. You know, when I first started hearing about this stuff, I thought, eh, you know, that's that's just something the Beatles came up with to maybe to sell more records, or just they're just goofing on people because they liked it. Yeah. They kind of did that kind of stuff, you know. And after listening to, to be honest with you, after listening to your interview um, with, I think it was a lady named Sophia. Sophia uh, Smallstorm. Yes. Um, I was I was a convert. I mean, <laughs> you convinced me, and and I know a lot of the information you're you're pulling from is a is a book that came out um, that that I guess was apparently written by um, or ghost written by a guy for the person who apparently is the <clears throat> the the faux Paul, or as as I guess John Lennon coined the term fall F A U L, meaning fake Paul. Um, so, you know, I, I have to say you you turned my head around with what you with what you put out there and it's it's very involving, it's very intricate, but the way you the way you lay it out there, it all makes perfect sense. It really does when you when you start thinking about it. And and you know the, the big thing the biggest thing for me is that, you know, when you look at just the Paul part of it, it's kind of like a microcosm of a of the larger picture. And and that begins with the Tavist, Tavistock Institute, which um you know, which we did, as I told you in my email when I contacted you, we've done two shows on that now. And we got up to the point where the where the Beatles came in. So so it seemed logical to, you know, to try and get get a hold of you and, and try and talk a little bit more about that. Um, so I think when you put it in that context, to me, it starts to make a lot more sense, you know, with the, the, the totality of it, I guess. So I don't know. Can you talk a little bit more about the Tavistock aspect of the Beatles? kind of as a lead up to the, you know, to what happened with the Paul thing, um, because some of our listeners may have not heard the previous show. Hopefully most of them have, but um, just, just as a kind of lead up to that. So I'll, I'll turn it over yeah, to you. At this sure. Um, well, first of all, let me just say that the book is the memoirs of Billy Shears and the author, mm-hmm. actually they refer to him as the encoder is uh, Thomas E. U. Harriet. And I always start the show guys by letting folks know that I have, absolutely nothing to do with the book. I'm not compensated in any way. It's just a book that I picked up. Mm-hmm. And I can't even tell you why I did. Um, but I read it going back in early 2016. And it was uh, something that blew me away. It's 666 pages, 66 chapters. So you have all the occulted numerology. Yeah. Numbers. Yep. yep. Right. And, um, and then I did the show with Sophia, and I didn't even want to do that show, to be honest with you. I Sophia's a very good friend of mine, so I was just chatting with her offline. And I was telling her about the book, and she said, hey, Mike, you need to come on my podcast and talk about the book. And I really dragged my feet because I didn't 
want to one become the Paul is dead guy, which I think mm. now is probably too um, late. I could just forget that. <laughs> <laughs> that ship, that ship is sailed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then two, um, I knew it was going to take an enormous amount of prep to to get the book into some kind of format where I can present it because it's six hundred and sixty six pages. So it took me a long time to put it into PowerPoint and to break down the various aspects. Uh, and topics that the book presents. So I've done that now, so it's a lot easier for me to talk about it. Um, now, in the book, it says that, it clearly states that the Beatles are a Tavistock creation. They are a Tavistock project, and they have been from the very beginning. And I know that there are, some folks don't like to hear that because they want to believe that the Beatles were organic from from the onset, and that's just not true. So from the very beginning, it was uh, it was all Tavistock, and the reason for it was the social engineer, uh, plain and simple. Uh, I think the biggest win out of this uh, for Tavistock was their ability to swap out one of the most famous musicians, entertainers at the peak of their uh, popularity back in 1966, and really nobody noticed. Of course, there were you know there was a small percentage of people that questioned or maybe looked at it kind of strange, like I don't know, he he looks a little different there, but for all intents and purposes, um, nobody noticed, and this was huge for Tavistock. Um, you know, it really set the stage for bigger and better things uh, down the road as far as understanding, further understanding, the human psyche. And because that's, as you guys know, since you've done shows on Tavistock, that's what they're in business to do, to social engineer, to brainwash, um, you know, to indoctrinate, and so on. It's propaganda. And um, at the end of the day, that's what the McCartney conspiracy, the Paul is Dead conspiracy, is all about. It's all about the fact that they swapped the guy out. He was very famous. Virtually everybody knew him, and nobody noticed. And, you know, it seems like part of the <clears throat> from from studying what Tavistock does and and some of the other groups attached to Tavistock, is is that when there's an event, um, th they like to do, they like to do it in plain sight, you know. And and what what uh, there's some kind of energy attached to that. They get that they get some kind of power, I guess, from you know, like with the Kennedy assassination, you know. I was here, waiting. Here was, was waiting kill, for that. killing the king in plain sight, you know, right. basically televised. So I, I think maybe there's. Do, is it your understanding that there's some of that kind of thing, that kind of energy attached to this as well, where they're just like putting it in your, in our faces and saying, hey, look what we can do, that kind of thing? Well, virtually everything in the occult is hidden in plain sight. So, yeah. yes, they yeah. absolutely hide in plain sight. And are they into the occult? Absolutely. I mean, they are hand in hand with British Freemasonry. So um, they are part of the circle of adepts and initiates into the mystery religions. Um, and this is, you know, this is what they do. It's part of the whole, maybe some people might understand it better if I say it's part of the inner circle of the ruling elite. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this, that's, it's all secret societies. And that's another thing that many people have a difficult time with because they don't understand secret societies. But our world is controlled by these societies, by the brotherhoods, by the Freemasons. Uh, and if you go up the ladder a little bit more, you know, it becomes the Illuminati and so on. Um, and, you know, once you do the research, I know you guys have, you, you come to the conclusion, a sound conclusion, that 
That's the way the world works. Virtually everything is engineered and orchestrated and anything worth knowing, and I've said this on many shows, um, is a lie. I think that for, for a lot of people is that if you do any kind of significant reading, if you actually like open your mind and you listen to other people's opinions, even if they don't jive with your worldview, after a while you get a sense that everybody in the collective unconscious understands there is something very wrong going on here. We can't put our finger on it. And a perfect example, Walt and I have brought this up many times, whereas the Wall Street Journal, which is printed in different printing houses all over the country had different front pages for the same edition of the same exact newspaper with different headlines to accommodate and to appease the local demographics as it were that's just the most overt example that you can look at you also look at how they slant the news everybody does it whether it's fox msnbc npr pbs they all have a a twist or an angle or a spin to it and everybody i bet is listening to this they gotta be like shrugging their shoulders to say come on do you really think that the tavistock institute is behind all of this and your answer to that is mike my answer is yes absolutely they are and that's the other thing the trap that people fall into they believe that all of this is too big for any one organization or a group of organizations to be able to control. And if you do the research and you dig into um, the, the ruling class and into their occultism, it's, it's pretty easy to see. Like you said, once you have an open mind and you start thinking critically. I mean, as an example, uh, the, the Tavistock Foundation, um, or Tavistock Institute, I should say, uh, has developed such power in the U.S. that no one achieves prominence in any field unless they've been trained in behavioral sciences at Tavistock or one of its sub, uh, subsidiaries. And through the Stanford Research Institute, Tavistock controls the National Education Association. Um, and we can go on and on. Um, they are also uh, behind the Esalen Institute, which is behind the whole New Age movement, MIT, the Hudson, the Hudson Institute, Heritage Foundation, the Center of Strategic and International Studies at Georgetown, where State Department personnel and um, Air Force Intelligence and the RAND corporations are trained. So, you know, we have to understand that the people who control, it's, it's a pyramid structure. So you don't need uh, millions and millions and millions of people to control. All you need is uh, a small kludge that are in control. They control your money, they control your education system, they control your military, they control your governments, they control your media, they control all of that. So, you know, once you have control of, of all of those mechanisms and all those variables in society and the cultures, it's not very difficult to begin to understand that um, that they have enormous influence. You mentioned, um, was it the New York Times in their article? Washington, uh, <laughs> Wall Street Journal, I'm sorry. Wall the Street Wall Street Journal, Journal. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, the Wall yeah. Street Journal. Well, another example of that would be, and many folks have seen this on YouTube, where the local news um, across the country have the same lead-in for a particular story, the mm -hmm. same one. 
And it's the same exact words. It's the same exact script. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did that happen? Well, the the reason that happens is because I believe it's uh, five or six corporations. The number used to be six. Maybe it's less now. Maybe it's five. But they control all of the major media in this country. I think down in Australia, it's two. It's two companies. So the way I explain it, guys, to folks, and we'll use the media as an example, six companies. So how can six companies control the message? Well, all it takes is six people to sit in the room from those different companies on a conference call, whatever it may be, and to, and to decide what it is they're going to show and what it is they're not going to show, what they're going to tell us and what they're not going to tell us. I mean, it's really that simple, you know, and um, it, it does. It takes, it takes a, um, a person to be able to take the blinders off and, and let go of the institutionalized belief systems that we have and just, you know, let it roll. And, and once you do that, a lot of this stuff will start to make sense. Mike, I wonder, uh, just real quick, I want to yeah. ask you, um, getting back to the rear, just backpedaling just a, a peg, the red and blue thing, I had not heard that before. Um, but I, oddly enough, I was just in a, an antique shop the other day looking at vintage vinyl, and I, I saw the the first... Uh, section of the of the Beatles album, the earlier, uh, what was it, 61 to 66, I think? 62 um, to 66, the red 62 album. 62 yeah. to 62. That's red, and then the and the other one is blue. I was just looking at them. But I did, at the time, I didn't I didn't know about the color thing. But does that correlate to our um, our political parties, the the, the yeah. red and the blue? Uh, is that another way of indicating that, you know, they're, they have their hands in, deeply embedded into those? Absolutely. That's why you see red and blue. I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but the red and blue is, um, it's all Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. And it's the Red Lodge and the Blue Lodge. And the other reason why they use red and blue is because from a human uh, psychology perspective, the the mind sees the color red and red uh, is warning, um, be alarmed, uh, have concern, uh, pay attention. And then blue is more of a calming effect, uh, an effect that has on the mind uh, generosity as an example. So that's why a lot of your big box stores like Walmart and Sam's Club, um, you know, their decor is is blue. So when you go in there, you're more apt to spend money. Mm -hmm. So so the whole understanding of the human mind is extremely advanced and it's extremely intricate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I by by trade, I'm a hypnotherapist. So, and I have been a hypnotherapist for a long time. So I have an understanding of the human mind and and how it works and yeah. suggestions yeah. and so on. So that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a couple of things. Yes, the red and blue on your television set. Whenever you're watching a uh, like cable news, that is as an example, you're going to see the sets are predominantly red and blue. You're going to have somebody come on the show like a pundit. And they're going to talk about why we should be alarmed about a particular event shooting that took place. Most of the time, that woman will be dressed, if it's a lady, in a red dress. If it's a guy, he'll have a red tie. Because what is being telegraphed to us is, please pay attention. This is important for you to focus on. Hmm. Or if it's somebody coming on to talk about something else, and let's just say, oh, just calm down. Don't worry about it. We have it under control. No need to worry. That lady, if it's a lady speaking, will be decked out in a blue outfit. Or if it's a guy, he'll have a blue tie on. That's why a lot of times you'll see um, um, 
Trump come out or before him, Obama, red ties, blue ties. You know, they wear other ties occasionally, but most of the time it's red and blue. And you think to yeah. yourself, boy, yes. we should give these guys a color wheel because we have more than just red and blue colors. <laughs> right, you know? right. There's more but colors you know, the in funny, the spectrum, too. The funny too. thing is, I'm sorry, yeah. most people don't think about it. I mean, they look at the guy speaking and they say, oh, he's got a red tie on or he's got a blue tie on. And they don't realize that there's some significance to that. You know, I, in, in fact, I, I noticed that. But yeah. I didn't ever really take it to the next step and say, well, there's there's some kind of symbology or symbolism attached to that. Attached to that. It, it makes sense when you start thinking well, about it. Well, they, they all speak in, uh, I don't say speak, but they communicate in signs and symbols. See, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. their, words oh, yeah. are, their words are for the profane. We are considered the profane. We are mm -hmm. the unknowing. We are not adepts. We are not initiates in the mysteries. So uh, in their secret societies, in their brotherhoods, so when they speak their words, their words are uh, for us. And it's all about deception and manipulation and steering of the thought and the steering of consciousness. Um, but when they have their hand signs and their, um, their color codes and all that stuff, that's for them. They're communicating within their secret society, uh, within their brotherhood. That's, that's how they communicate. You know, when Trump walks around making the upside down triangle all the time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, so this is this is um, this is esoteric occulted uh, symbols that are being used, um, and again, most people, are, the vast majority of people, I should say, are not going to pick up on that. They just it goes right over their heads. And even when I've had conversations with people and I've explained to them, take a look for that. You know, take a look at certain things. Um, you know, they think I'm crazy, but, you know. But I, but I also think there's a there's a subconscious level to it, too. You know, we, we may not, um, when I say we, I'm talking about the, uh, me, myself being a member of the profane. Um, you know, it, do, does that somehow stick in our consciousness, though? That, you know, maybe on a, on a conscious level, we don't pick up, up on it necessarily, or you don't look at it and say, oh, he's making an Illuminati sign, because most people don't even know what that is, I don't think, or they right. think Illuminati is some stuff that somebody made up. Um, but does that stick in our subconscious on some level? In, you know, I mean, you being a hypnotherapist, you must have some sense of that. I think for some people, yes. For most people, no. Uh, this is how it was explained to me, and this was explained to me by a very high-level Freemason. Mm -hmm. Um what they do is they look to separate the wheat from the chaff. So when they speak, as an example, their speaking is layered. Think of it in terms like peeling back an onion. So on the surface, the words might mean one thing. But then if you peel back the words and you really analyze what it is that's being said, you can get to a second layer of meaning or third layer of meaning. That third layer of meaning is the true meaning. So... It's called, in the world of Freemasonry, it's referred to as speaking masterfully. Mm -hmm. So a Mason who speaks masterfully and is very good at it can tell a ton of truth. But you have to understand how it is that the words are being put together in order to get that truth. If you don't understand it and you're not paying attention to it, then what's going to happen is you're not going to get it. In, in the minds of the Masons, when they do this to the profane, and for the profane that pick up on it, they view um, that as them, the Freemasons, enlightening you. 
there's a process of illumination taking place because you're starting to get it. You're starting to understand it. And then anybody else who doesn't get it, well, they get what they deserve because they are not thinking. This is, then, I'm not saying then, this is right or wrong. I'm just saying yeah, mm-hmm. this it is, is, it this is, is what how it, is. it works. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. They're not in. The, they're not in on the. They're not on the inside club. They're, you know, right. They're they're on the outside. That that kind of brings me to uh, to kind of get back to the to the Beatles a little bit. Um, I I uncovered a guy named Theodore Adorno. Yeah, Have you, I'm sure you've heard about him. Yes. Um, so so he apparently was. Um, um, I think he was Italian, but he was he spent a good portion of time in in Germany. He may have, he may actually have been German um, pre pre World War Two, and and he studied um, behavioral techniques and and how to manipulate society through um, tonality and and the, the intonation of language and things like that. And and the uh, some of the thinking is that that he was influential, or he was hired by Tavistock, any, at any rate, to um, or brought in by Tavistock, to to impact the lyrics of the Beatles. Um, do you do you know much about that, Mike, or have you uncovered any of that? Well, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I know about Theodore Adorno, and mm-hmm. some will say that he wrote the Beatles' music, especially the early stuff. Yeah. Uh, prior yeah. to. Uh, Not sure about that, but. Um, well. Uh, that, that's, I'm, I'm just saying that's a theory yeah. that's out there. Right, I, I don't yeah. personally no, subscribe to it, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but do I believe that Theodore Adorno and others within Tavistock were instrumental in helping to shape the Beatles' lyrics and sound? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, whether it was Theodore Adorno himself or somebody like Theodore Adorno, um, I, I have come to the conclusion that the Beatles were very much orchestrated. Um, that uh, I'm not saying that biological Paul or John didn't come in with a song. They they, they wrote songs, but then what happened uh, after that was uh, the whole production process and uh, the layering of let's say George Martin's orchestration. Yeah, George, yeah. Uh, the assistance of um, of maybe tweaking lyrics, things like that. I I do not discount that at all. I'd like to actually well, interject here and ask you about other other bands. Could could this have something to do with the anything to do with the fact that other bands who tried to replicate what the Beatles were doing were not able to capture the imagination of the American public? Like say, maybe the maybe the the Moody Blues or the Rolling Stones they tried to do something very similar to the Beatles, but they didn't catch on because they did not have the background orchestration or manipulation by the Tavistock Institute? Or is there evidence that the Tavistock Institute uh, had also worked with other bands trying to duplicate that success? Oh, the Tavistock definitely worked with the Stones. So the, the Rolling Stones were considered the bad boys of rock and roll and you know the Beatles the good guys. And that was intentionally done to have that, that duality. Um, but I will say, and there, and there have been other bands. Uh, I, I would say that most of the British Invasion, as an example, uh, were in some way uh, Tavistock projects. Maybe some more than others, but influenced by Tavistock. Now, the thing with the Beatles is, and I've always noticed this because myself, I'm a musician. I'm a guitarist and you know write songs and stuff like that. Um, I've always noticed, even from a very early age, that the quality of the Beatle recordings, even going back to, let's say, 1963 and their first album, Please Please Me, the recordings are impeccable. 
they are impeccable. And when the Beatles re-released their albums back, I guess it was in the 1980s on CD, you can really hear how well the Beatle recordings were recorded initially. And then you could take a look, uh, or just take a listen to other bands like the Rolling Stones, and it wasn't that way. I mean, the Stones had decent recordings, but it wasn't this pristine recording like the Beatles had. The same thing with Led Zeppelin. If you listen to Led Zeppelin's music, like um, it, one song that sticks out is the Immigrant Song. The very beginning, um, the original version of the song, there's a lot of tape hiss. And I thought to myself, why would anybody release that song with that much tape hiss? You know, Why wouldn't they either try to reduce the hiss or re-record the song so it wouldn't be there? Later on, Jimmy Page, when he went back and he uh, re- remixed and remastered all of the, uh, the Led Zeppelin library, he took care of that. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that there were other great bands out there and the quality of the recordings were not like that of the Beatles. The Beatles were front and center, head and shoulders above everybody else. And we're going back to 1963. So in my view, again, this is my view, they had big plans for the Beatles and they knew 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line where they were going to go with the material. And that's why it was done the way it was done. Um, so Mike, I, I want to get back to just for a, uh, a brief moment to Adorno, um, only because I think it's an important aspect of this. Um, I, I this, Again, this is my opinion, but I think he may have add, added things like um, uh, on She Loves You, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah part, those kinds of things, because because he understood the resonance of language. And and when you think about it, those were the things that really kind of stuck in your mind. You know, I mean, on, on some level, She Loves You is sort of just a, you know, a surface kind of love song, you know. Right. But there's something about it that just sticks, you know, it just it just sticks. And I, I think he may have been the he, he was kind of putting the the cherry on the Sunday, maybe, or, you know, adding the stuff that really sticks to the bones when people listen to it, you know, that, that at least that's my, my thinking anyway. But, but another aspect is that if you remember back when, and you, you probably know about this, but if you remember back when Michael Jackson bought the rights to the, um, to all the Beatles songs, right. Um, I don't remember exactly when that was, it was back a ways, I guess in the eighties maybe or something, but, um, and I, I think, um, Paul, um, or, the the person posing as Paul, Bill. I think, uh, was was yeah was was bidding on um, that when he got outbid by Michael Jackson, which is hard for me to believe, but um, with the money he probably has. Um, but the the rights to the songs were owned by Theodore Adorno's estate. Um, that's who Michael Jackson bought them from. So, you know, how do you explain that? Or, you know, how'd that happen? <laughs> Yeah, well, the whole rights situation um, is is very convoluted. Um, I had a um, person contact me who is very prominent in the music industry um, mm-hmm. and uh, was explaining to me about that whole situation with uh, Michael Jackson. And later on, it became Sony that um, Bill, playing the part of Paul McCartney, um, mm-hmm. the battle he was having over the rights. The Theodore Adorno portion of it, I mean, how do you explain that? I mean, I, you know, there is no explanation other than the fact that somehow it was tied back to Theodore Adorno. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So the whole thing is, um, uh, the way it was explained to me was the the royalties and the rights, uh, very complex going back, especially into the early days. Uh, and, this, and while you ask that question, I want to explain something, because this was what was explained to me. You guys remember 
when um, McCartney or Bill was trying to buy the rights, like you said, from Michael Jackson. Well, the reason why he was trying to buy the rights uh, from Jackson and later on he had a legal battle with Sony was because he does not uh, own the rights, the copyrights, as the owner of the song. Biological Paul does, you see. So he wasn't getting any money ah, from the songs sense. like yeah. Yesterday, Michelle, and, and so on. He wasn't getting that any money sense. from that. He was getting zero. This is why in the early days when he would go out and do concerts, he may do a couple of token early Beatles songs that weren't his, but everything else was post, you know, from 1967 on, and of course his wing stuff and his solo stuff. Mm-hmm. And what he was really doing was he was trying to get a piece of the publisher's action. That's what he was trying to do. So when he was trying to buy the publishing rights for Michael Jackson, he was actually trying to get rights for the songs that he didn't own because he was not the original songwriter. It was biological, Paul. Now, when he didn't win that battle with Michael Jackson, uh, what he was then doing when Jackson passed and the the songs are in the possession of uh, the publishing rights in the possession of Sony is he was looking... Bill was looking to negotiate with Sony to say, look, give me a share of your publishing rights because I can make you money. Because if I play these songs in concert, the, the, you know, the mechanical licenses are going to kick in and uh, the, the royalties are going to flow. The money's going to flow. So, you know, give me a piece of the action and we're good. And that's what he was battling about. Because normally a songwriter is not going to go to their publisher and say, I want a piece of your action too, because I already got my piece. I wrote the song. So I'm mm-hmm. getting the, the owner's portion of the royalties, right? I'm a songwriter. That's how it works for me. My publisher is TuneCore. So I, mean, I don't go to TuneCore and say, I want a piece of your action too. I mean, you sign an agreement. Right. And um, so that's what was going on with that. And finally, he, uh, he closed with Sony. Uh, the two of them are going head to head, and then there was a an agreement. It's sealed. It's confidential, and uh, they brokered a deal. So what that says to me is, Bill got a share of the the publishing royalties from Sony. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's another clue. People might say, well, what? Why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it says that he's not biological Paul. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been going around round and round with Michael Jackson and Sony. I want to be able to makes perfect sense. Yeah, I want to be be able to make sure that everybody understands when you refer to Bill, you're talking about the person who is masquerading as Paul McCartney. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. William Shepard or Bill Shepard, Billy Shears. Some people want to call him Billy Campbell, William Campbell. I call him Bill Shepard because that's the name that he gives us in the memoirs of Billy Billy Shears. Okay. who's Who's Billy Campbell? Is that just another moniker that he's used over yeah yeah prior to the whole thing yeah he claims that uh bill bill campbell or william campbell was uh a moniker that was given to him by fred labor back during the 1969 time frame uh labor i think had a radio show and uh labor had according to shepherd in the book he had taken some um uh, leeway with uh, how much of the story he was going to put out there. Shepard says that they had actually leaked and given Labor information to work with to begin the the whole process of, of the rumors to you know to, to give them some more momentum. 
And one of the uh, uh, the leeways that Labor took was he came up with the name Campbell, and that kind of stuck. Now, in the book, uh, Bill Shepard says that he has relatives who are Campbells. He's Scottish, by the way. He's not British. Uh, but he claims in the book his, his real surname is uh, Shepard. Do you, do you want to get into to the book a little bit, uh, Mike? Because uh, that really is, I think, the definitive um, information anyway, you know, apparently from what, you know, from what I could glean from the Internet and stuff. Is, do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, I know it's extensive and it's a huge amount of material, but maybe you can kind of uh, synthesize it a little bit to get it down to, to something that's, you know, <laughs> a manageable quantity that makes makes the whole thing, because that really does make the whole thing make sense in some ways. So I'll, I'll yeah. turn that over to you. Yeah, so the book was uh, released on September 9th of 2009. Now, one of the things that you you pick up in the book um, is that uh, the number nine and the number six are very, very important. So Paul McCartney, biological Paul McCartney, is represented by the number nine in numerology, and Shepard himself is the number six. So that's why you have 666 pages, 66 chapters. But... Uh, We'll find that release dates and key dates, uh, many times Bill Shepard is using the number nine. So as an example, uh, as I mentioned, the Memoirs of Billy Shears was released on September 9, 2009. That's 999. This year, he I was told this in advance, and I, I did have it out on Facebook. I think I may have had it out on one show, too. I really wish I had gotten it out earlier so that people could see it was a validation. I was told by a source within the inner circle, Bill's inner circle, well, I guess I would, first, maybe I shouldn't say inner circle, but there are groups, there are teams working for Bill uh, on the process of disclosure. So a, a person within one of those groups contacted me and said to me that, okay, so here's another clue for you, Mike. He's going to release uh, his new album, and it's going to be released, and it's going to have 999 again. So I said, okay, so September 9th, 2018, because the last two digits of 2018, one and eight, you know, one plus eight is nine. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually released on September 7th, 2018. And, uh, you know, some people said to me, gee, Mike, he didn't release on September 9th. However, when you regroup the numbers, it's September, as the ninth month, seven plus the two, from 2018, seven plus two is nine, plus the one plus eight, the last two digits of the year is nine, 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 nine. So we did it again. I was also told that along with releasing the album, he was going to announce uh, a tour, in which indeed he did. Uh, and the reason why I'm telling the, the folks this is because, you know, there's a lot of information that has come to me from various people. Um, and I have to check it all out. Some of it, you know, I just deem as nonsense and other stuff that I, I believe to have some substance to it, I follow up on. Um, but it's things like this that are coming to me and these things are happening. You know, he did release the album. It, it was associated with the nines. He did announce a tour and I should not have known about a tour, you know, two or three months ago, but I did. Um, so anyway, so the book is loaded up with um, 
numbers. It is what they refer to as layered, which means that I was talking before about the peeling the onion back. So there's the first layer of words, but then when you, you start to take a look at the words at a, um, a second level or a third level, basically doing a deeper dive, you start to understand more and more about what's really the story that's really being told. So the book itself is being masterfully written. Okay. And the person that's telling us the story is Bill Shepard. That's what he claims in the book, that it's it's Shepard himself coming out as part of the disclosure process to clue us in. And so what they did was they released the book, uh, they did it independent publishing, self-publishing. And this is something that he does as well. People who know of him and his his work through the years, uh, Bill playing Paul McCarty, he does a lot of uncredited work or if he takes credit for something, a lot of times he will use an alias. So putting the book out kind of under the radar is not uncommon. It's not something that uh, would be unusual for how he likes to operate. He likes to do things in a tongue-in-cheek type of way. Uh, he likes to do it as basically part of uh, puzzle solving. And this is how Bill is. He's a very bright guy, uh, loves anagrams, has a incredible respect for numbers. He is into the occult. He is into mysticism. And all of this is stated in the book. So uh, just the reason why I'm doing this little, I'm prefacing it here a little bit, guys, is because sometimes people just believe it's just another run-of-the-mill uh, Beatles book, and it's, it's really not. And I've read a lot of books on the Beatles over the years. So just the other thing I want to say, it's not the only book I have read uh, about the Beatles or McCartney and so on. Uh, it's 66 hundred and six hundred sixty six pages uh, it claims that biological Paul died on September 11th 1966 it claims it was a car crash um, other researchers will be very adamant and say it wasn't September it was August or it was November again I don't get hung up on it uh, it doesn't really matter whether he died in August September or November um, I think that you're majoring in the minors when you get stuck you're kind of stuck in the weeds um, at the very least, the reason why they put the September 11th number out there is because, as you guys know, um, looking into the occult, September 11th is a very important date in the occult. Uh, he says that his name is William Bill Shepard. Um, his, actually, his full name is William Wallace Shepard. He says that he is descendant of William Wallace, who was the, the great Scottish warrior. He is the... Um, the, uh, the warrior that was played by Mel Gibson mm -hmm. in the movie Braveheart. Mm -hmm. He states very clearly the Beatles were a Tavistock project, uh, that the Beatles are an occult Masonic creation, that virtually all of the Beatles songs post 9-11, uh, 1966 include Paul is Dead Clues, uh, and the occult origins and underpinnings within the Beatle story is referred to as Paulism. Right, so Paulism is a, is a, a form of occultism. Uh, it's mysticism. Uh, some will refer to it as Satanism. Uh, and there's a, a, a very uh, strong thread of Crowley's mysticism and magic in the book, um, even though Bill himself says that uh, he does not subscribe to, to Crowley. He says that Crowley was a doctrine of hate, but he clearly states that, you know, he's... Uh, uh, very, very well-versed in the occult, in mysticism, in the esoteric, and so on. 
Um, Tom U. Harriet uh, is a um, from Amazon. This is an, a description that was there, bio, author, poet, philosopher, speaker, and teacher. Uh, he had a Bachelor of Arts degree in English at Brigham Young University. And, you know, for those that are in the know, you know, it's Brigham Young is uh, is all, virtually all Mormon. I think 95% of its student population is Mormon. There's about 5% that are not. Mormonism is uh, connected at the hip with uh, uh, Freemasonry. Um, in fact, Tom did write me and say that he did leave the Mormon Church in 09, but uh, you know he can't say the same thing about Freemasonry. <laughs> so so he's, a real, I, he's an actual person then. The guy oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, maybe we should talk about that a little bit too. Why, why do they Why do they refer to him as an encoder? Is it an encoder? Is that what yeah, you said? An encoder. Yep. What, what's it, What's going on with that? Because in the book. Uh, along with the words that you read, there's uh, multiple layers of encoding. So there is, um, throughout the book, on each page, there are bolded letters. And if you read the bolded letters by themselves, they are sentences. So these sentences will, will give you additional clues. They're, they're basically, think of them as almost subliminals. Mm -hmm. Right. So as you're reading, you're seeing these bolded letters. You may not be paying attention to the bolded letters initially. You might go back and take a look and read at them. But as you're initially reading the book, you're reading it through with the bolded letters. These are subliminal messages that are taking place. And some of these subliminal messages, uh, I have an example here. I'll read it from one of my slides. So in the memoirs of Billy Shears, um, one of the pages, the bolded letters say, I play the long running show. All performances require each to have one role with a name in some other show. Every role has its own name. The part of Paul is the same. I go by several names. So what Bill is saying there is, is that he's an entertainer, that he's a, what Mark Devlin, Mark Devlin's a very good friend of mine, uh, a lifetime actor. You know, he plays characters. That's what he did. He played the character of Phil Ackrell from the band The Diplomats when he played with Denny Lane in the early 60s. He was played the character of Vivian Stanshall um, and so on. So th that's the encoding. Now, the other thing with the encoding is that the first letters of, this, of each sentence, I think it's every other sentence. I have to go back and take a look at it. Um, when you read... Uh, not horizontal, but vertically down, you're going to get even more encoding. You're going to, you're going to get additional insights. Is that, is that the third layer that you talked about? Yeah, or, it's like, let's just, say real... that, let's just say that's the third layer. So let's just say the first layer is, you know, just reading the words. The second layer would be the mm -hmm. bolded letters. The third layer would be reading the text vertically. Now, I've had people come to me, some have been researchers, and they think, you know, the memoirs of Billy Shears is nothing but, you know, Freemasonic nonsense and all this stuff, and that Tommy Harriet is nothing but you know, a Paul is dead uh, forum troll and so on. They, some of these people have not even read the book, and they're making these statements. You have to understand how much effort and work went into this book in order to make the second layer and the third layer to work. That is a massive undertaking that requires Absolutely. an incredible amount of skill. Really? To be able to do that. It's yeah. A huge, a huge like crossword puzzle almost. Exactly. It's got, got all and, kinds of layers to it. It's, that's amazing. 
and 666 pages worth, right? And Walt, you're a writer and you've written a book. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you imagine trying to do something like that with Blood Club? Like have three layers of messaging in that? I mean... Well, there is, there's, you know, there is different layers when you write anything, there's, right? <clears throat> but, but it's not so specifically encoded like that. You know, you try to get some, you try to imbue some kind of a message into what, you know, that's below what the actual words right. say. But no, I mean, you know, for, to, to but, do but, what Mike is talking about is just like he said. I, I can't even imagine what. <laughs> how, would how, you, how, even how would you even start? Do that? How would you even like create an outline to be able to do that? I, I, I simply cannot imagine. Um, but the thing is, is that this entire book, and I'm looking at it on Amazon, and I'm about to pull the trigger on it. You look at it, though, and it was like, I mean, if you know anything about books that they sell on Kindle, or I mean, on Amazon through Kindle, um, they're usually pretty inexpensive. But for a, a Kindle book to be more than 20 bucks that's almost unheard of that is that's pretty rare and to find out that it is six um 666 pages not including all the blank pages that they sneak in there and what and the acknowledgements and stuff like that that is in it of itself is that this seems like it this is this is a pretty dense volume um and so this is this is something that everybody can pick up, even though it's a, it's a little bit pricey. We're not trying to sell any books here, I don't think. But you, I mean, this is you would consider this book here to be definitive proof of what really happened to to Paul McCartney. I I would yes. Um, now people will argue that because the book is called historical fiction. Mm-hmm. I was wondering so the, about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason why it's called historical fiction is because, and this is explained in the book in great detail, um, it's because Bill has signed uh, confidentiality agreements and non-disclosures. He has secrecy agreements in place. And if he breaks those secrecy agreements, those non-disclosures or those confidentiality agreements, if he breaches them, he can lose a lot. Everything. We're talking about everything, right? So... So what they've done is um, they've put the book in play as historical fiction. And there are elements of it that have been fictionalized. Maybe it was a particular conversation that took place, maybe originally or, uh, you know, let's say it took place in uh, New York City. Um, They will take that conversation. They might change the conversation just a little bit, keeping the actual uh, uh, content and intent of the original conversation, but they m- might move it to like uh, to LA. I'm just using that as an example. So it, it's it's things like that that take place in the book. Um, but I I have gotten to know Tom. Uh, I don't want to say you know we're, we're best friends, but. Uh, we are acquaintances now after two years of me doing the research into this. And Tom and I have uh, conversed back and forth here and there. I've asked him uh, a lot of questions. He has been very gracious uh, as far as getting back to me and explaining uh, what he could. Um, the, the other thing is Tom is also bound by secrecy agreements and confidentiality agreements. He he can't you know spill the beans on certain things, but he will point me in certain directions. Um, Tom has uh, said to me that Mike... Through the layering of the book, once you get into the second layer, the third layer, layer, and so on, the, the book is no longer fiction. 
So, um, and that's how it's been explained to me. And of course, there there are going to be folks uh, that are not going to buy that. They're going to say, you know, the whole thing is fiction, and uh, because they'll argue about the date. Some will argue that his real name is not Shepard. They'll argue that he wasn't killed in a car crash. Some will argue that original biological Paul is still alive. You know, and uh, so I try to avoid getting into those debates because they're circular debates. You can never win them because at the end of the day, it all becomes that person's particular perspective and conjecture. And that's why I bring it around to, okay, so let's get back to Tavistock, right? It's, it's, let's talk about the Tavistock psyop because that's really what it's all about at the end of the day, in my view. Uh, but the book itself, I would say that anybody who is into the Paul is dead research if you have not read the book, you need to read the book. If this is not something that tickles your fancy and it's just kind of like a, a fleeting thing, it's kind of entertaining, then don't read the book. <laughs> you know. But if you're really into this and you're very intrigued by it, uh, the book will be a mind blower. I, I've had people write me and uh, they said, you know, Mike, I listened to the shows and uh, I, I finally broke down and I bought the book and I'm so glad that I did because I cannot believe how much detail is in the book. And that's the thing. There is so much detail in the book that only somebody that was there could have possibly compiled that much information. In fact, I had one email with Tom going back, I guess, about a year ago, and I asked him a question. It might have been a question about Phil Ackrell, which is a, um, a character that Bill played in the early 1960s with uh, Denny Lane. The band was The Diplomats. And uh, Tom wrote me back and he said, Mike, I have to go through the boxes to take a look and uh, see if I can get you an answer. So what was implied in Tom's response was I have to go back and take a look, you know, in the boxes means that he received boxes of information. And I'm sure those boxes of information were categorized and sorted and broken out, I mean, to the nth degree in great, great detail. So, so, you know, this stuff was sent over to him. Now, we talked a little bit before about the book being encoded the way it is and how intricate it is. The other thing is that we have to understand that within the secret societies, for those in the secret societies and like we'll say Freemasonry that are intrepid, uh, they, are, they are trained very early on to have certain skills. Um, and... Um, Tom, you know, being trained uh, to be a writer uh, in literature and so on, um, you know, his training had to be uh, extensive to such a degree that he's able to do the encoding that he did. T Tom was selected to do this work. And, and the way it works is within the, the Masonic pyramid, think of it as like a corporation. If, if you guys have work for a corporation. I, I used to work in the corporate world. You know, you have the you have the the CEO's office at the top of the pyramid, and then some decision is made. Uh, some strategy needs to be executed and put into play. Well, what happens is uh, then the people underneath the CEO they seek out the people within the organization within the pyramid that have those skills and that expertise, and they bring them together and they form teams. And then these teams work on, uh, you know, work on the initiative to put the project out, to deliver their deliverables, whatever, however you want to, you know, kind of phrase it. 
This is exactly how Freemasonry works. So Tom was selected as part of a team because of his skills and his expertise in his writing abilities. That's how it works. Um, it's very, very organized. You know, yeah, I, I know. Mike, do, <clears throat> yeah. Mike, do you think he was working off of a manuscript um, that was provided by um, Bill Shepard, or did he? Do you think he worked in conjunction with him to, to, you know, to produce this, this um, book of you know amazing amount of encoding? Uh, how do you think the process went? I think that I, I can only say I think because um, Tom has not given me information on this, um, right. and, and I understand why. But mm -hmm. So I'm not going to press him on things that I, I know that he can't answer. So this is how right. I think it works. I think that Bill has been documented from day one. So I believe that uh, he has probably one of the most documented and referenced lives of anybody that we know. So, which means that, you know, everything that he's done, concerts, songs, things he's said, TV shows, and interviews, and so on, all documented by him, maybe perhaps some of it by him, but I believe that he has an inner circle, and this inner circle is responsible for the actual documentation of Bill Shepard playing the part of Paul McCartney. Mm, so sense. so I don't think anybody sat down at one point and said, oh, okay, let's reinvent the wheel here. Let's let's just kind of start writing about him. No, I, I think what happened was there's a dossier on, on William Shepard, and it's extensive. And uh, I th think that there were, you know, extractions from that dossier that were given to, uh, to Tom in the form of these boxes I mentioned, these files. And it was Tom's job to... Uh, to put it together. And uh, that's not to say that Tom's job was not incredibly uh, involved. I mean, it was no cakewalk for him. He, again, I'm giving you my, my theory. He was given the information. It was very organized. And, um, but it, it was then up to him to take that organized information and make chronological sense out of it on top of the fact that he was asked to encode the book to have that second and third layer. Mm -hmm. So that's how I think it worked. Now, do I think that Tom knows uh, Bill personally? I can't answer that question. I think yeah. that there was uh, maybe there is uh, some one-on-one -on -one correspondences, but I'm going to assume that most of it has come from people within the inner circle outside of Bill. Very close to Bill, but not Bill himself. Mm -hmm. But I, I do, I have picked up on a couple of conversations where I had with Tom where it seemed to me like, yeah, maybe he did have a conversation or two with Bill directly. I was, uh, it's funny, you mentioned uh, Denny Lane before, and uh, he's the guitarist from Wings that Paul used in Wings, I think. Um, I, I guess for most of the most of the Wings albums. Um, but I saw I saw an interview with him. Um, it was on YouTube, I guess, and and he was sitting down with an American writer or something, and they were drinking. You know, they were yeah. they were drinking. Denny was drinking some kind of liquor, and and this uh, guy that was interviewing him was drinking beer, and they were you know they were slogging it down during the course of the interview. It was only about a half hour, maybe or something. And by the time they got near the end of the interview, Denny, Denny, Denny was kind of feeling no pain, and and he started <laughs> talking about. Um, uh, um, Bill Shepard, 
Right. And, and the, the guy, the guy that was interviewing, it kind of, kind of surprised him with it, you know, like, oh, oh, by the way, what's it like playing with Bill Shepard, you know? And, and he said, uh, he kind of paused for a minute and then he's kind of like he said, you could see his, his mind going thinking, oh, what the hell? Yeah. Bill Shepard's. Yeah. I, I love playing with Bill Shepard and, and not Billy Campbell though. He said, you know, so, um, I just thought that was kind of weird that he would, you know, yeah, and, I, and I, I know I, he was involved in that whole, the Mercy sound, which goes back to, you know, the early Beatles sound and um, Ferry Across the Mercy and, and, you know, all those songs. So so he was he was in and you said he was um, in with the other guy or well, Phil Avril. He was he played with him, too, who was apparently Bill Shepard. Right. In some kind of other permutation of him or whatever. But, right. Yeah. So the whole thing with Danny Lane, I actually did a video on this. So that that's a very good. Yeah, it's a very good uh topic to talk about because it is a, a great example of uh, masterful speak. So first of all, we should all know that Denny Lane's real name is Brian Frederick Hines. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, Denny Lane Hines. is a stage name. Okay, so there we go with playing parts, right? He and Bill Shepard go way back. So they go back to the days of the diplomats when they played together, um, you know, Phil Ackrell and uh, Denny Lane. Now, in that interview... Uh, I think that was Renegade Nation, uh, and I believe the interview goes back to 2016 or 2017. So the guy that was interviewing him, who was, yeah, he was pretty rocked, but he asked some was, good yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah he, he said, uh, what was it like to play with uh, with uh, Billy Shepard? And so uh, Denny Lane says, oh, you mean uh, Billy Shears? Now, listen right, to what right. Denny Lane said. He didn't say no. He said, oh, Billy Shears. Well, Shears is a play off of the, the name Shepherd, right? Shears, Shepherd. Sheep. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay. So during that interview, the important thing to notice is that Denny Lane never mentions the name Paul McCartney. Never mentions it. No. And then the interviewer says, oh, you mean Billy Shears, Billy Shears Campbell or something to that effect. Yes. Yeah, Billy Shears Campbell. And uh, so the interview also says to uh, to Denny Lane, he goes, I hope you don't mind, you know, asking these questions. And so Denny says, oh, no, I can do this all night. And I'm paraphrasing here. So what Denny was really saying was, I can toy with you all night. Mm -hmm. Denny is very, very, I mean, he's, he's knee deep into this, just like Bill Shepard is. That's yeah. what he was really saying to him. We could do this all night because... I can go round and round. It's kind of fun. And this is the masterful speak part of it. At the end of the interview, Denny says, well, who the hell is Billy Campbell anyway? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. So mm -hmm. so what what Denny Lane was saying is he's not Billy Campbell. I never mentioned the name Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. And I never denounced the name Shepard. I just referred to him as Shears. That's the layering part of it. So we can we can kick out the name Paul McCartney because he's not Paul McCartney. We can mm -hmm. kick out the name Billy Campbell because he's not Billy Campbell. What are we left with? We're left with Billy Shears. And who's Billy Shears? Billy Shears is William Shepard. That's what Denny was telling us. Okay. That makes sense. That makes See? total sense. Yeah. yeah. That's it's the same thing that McCartney or Bill did as McCartney on the um on the Letterman show back in 2009. There mm -hmm. was a whole I bit saw that. there. Right? Yeah, yeah saw that that's classic. Too. That is yeah. classic masterful speaking. And he's he's superb at it. He oh. is superb at it. So, uh, and then at the very end, he puts his, 
his fingers to his lips, which basically is tell no secrets. The Illuminati. Yeah. 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 So, and of course, we were talking before, people don't pick up on that stuff. But, you know, once you know it. They don't. You'd think he was just saying, shh, you know, like just kind of joking around sort of thing. You you had said, too, in another interview, I saw that um, Letterman is a Mason, too. Oh, yeah. High level Mason. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, all, that all of these makes people. sense too. <laughs> my all my whole of, world is being uh, is is being changed by looking at these people differently. You know, I mean, I've been a Letterman fan for years and years and years. I, I always loved his work, but not that that really changes anything, I guess. But it's it just puts another whole layer yeah. on it that you didn't think about. You know, one of the things yeah, I'd, I, I'd like I think to that people I'm have sorry. to uh, understand that not you know all not all Freemasons are evil. Okay. No, 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 not yeah. at all. So I know, but there are going to be people that. They, they believe that. They believe if somebody's a Freemason that they're evil. And so all of these folks that are in the uh, in positions of influence, affluence, uh, you know, control, wealth, and so on, they're all in secret societies. They're all in secret societies. I mean, the, the, the uh, music industry and the entertainment industry is completely controlled. Mm-hmm. Completely controlled. Don't right. So and that's what we have to get our heads wrapped around. That's why there's so much uh, Illuminati uh, symbolism in the music business and the in you know, in Hollywood and so on. Well, why do you think that is? <laughs> yeah. It's well, it makes sense. Yeah. They're all in the club. They're mm-hmm. all in the yeah. club. Yeah. Are, are there various factions that vie for, um, you know, to get a leg up on, on the other one or do they all sort of work together? That's that's been kind of one of my questions. I, I, I don't really know how it all works, but, you know, do they do they ever get into like petty power struggles or, you know, that kind of thing to, that that you know of anyway? Um, not, I'll tell you how I think it works. Uh, I believe at the end of the day, they're all working toward the same objective because they mm-hmm. are all in the club and you have to stay in the club. If, if you walk off the reservation then you are permanently set out. You are ostracized. Mm-hmm. But I, I believe the way it works is like that... Being shunned by the... Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. You by are the definitely, religious groups. Yeah. Yes, you're definitely shunned. And you don't get to come back. This is what I was told. Mm-hmm. Now, the way I think it works is that um, it's within... Let's just say, let's stay on the music, in the music business as an example. Right. Nobody is handed anything on a silver platter. What is handed to them is the opportunity. And they have to earn that opportunity, by the way, right? So somebody's going to select them. Somebody's. Hey, Walt? So so those that are interrupted. Was that? No, because the so, thing so is, there's a, there a break there. Was I, yeah, I just, okay. I just want to interject okay. here for a second. This is like the third time that we have had interruptions while recording this podcast. Um, is it just a coincidence? I, I, I have no idea. But Walt and I will, will, will share with you that there are, there have been times when we have done controversial topics, and. It'll just cut out for no apparent reason. Take that as you were. Go ahead. Could be your equipment too, Eric. Well, I think it could be operator error as well. I'm not, uh, you know, but go ahead. (laughs) So go ahead, Mike. Okay. All right. So the way I I believe it works is that um, it's like within a corporation. So you're in the corporation. Just imagine you work for GE as an example. So, and imagine a GE is the is the secret society. So you've 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 gone in there. You 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 uh, applied and they went through the interviews and boom you're in now once you're in there you have to vie for position so which means you have to vie for promotion and that, that's that's how it works so um, 
they're given opportunities to uh, to excel, and if they excel, then they are rewarded. They're rewarded with higher positions. They're rewarded with more money. They're rewarded with more uh, influence, and so on. And you know, you use the music industry, you can use government, you can use the military, I mean, just pick one. That's how it works. So it's not like they're walking around handing out candy. You have to earn your position within the pyramid. Okay, this is why you'll see like many of these uh, these musicians, especially out of the um, out of Britain, out of the UK, they'll have their different um, titles like CBE, Commander of the Order of the British Empire, or the OBE, which is Officer of the Order of the British Empire, the MBEs, which the Beatles received back in 1966. These are all um, these are all awards that are handed out because you've achieved a certain uh, level of prominence within within the pyramid on a particular mm -hmm. rung of a ladder. So, okay, so we're going to recognize you with an MBE, an OBE, a CBE, or you might get knighted, you see? So um, that's how I, I believe it works. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not so much a... Uh, uh, a an easy path it, they have to earn it but if they if they earn it then there's going to be great rewards mm. so um by your estimation when the, when the beatles um were put together or were they put together or were they were they just these four guys that you know had a had a good amount of talent obviously they're talented guys you know um they're not trained musicians we know that but they're but they are you know very talented musically were did did they form you know kind of out of happenstance and then Tavistock noticed them and and said hey these guys are going to fit what we're looking for or or was it totally orchestrated right from the get-go do you think yeah, that's a great question. So I do want to say one thing. Uh, the original Beatles were not trained in music, but Bill Shepard is. Bill is uh, very much trained okay. in so music. He's, right? he's yeah. a, more of a refined musician. Than, he's a, than yes, he can were. read, write, mm -hmm. score music. Okay. 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 Um, so with the original Beatles, I, I believe the way it works, um, or the way it worked and probably still works this way, is that um, there are bands out there. So back in the day, you know, they're playing out in the cavern, they're playing out in Germany and so on. There were many, many bands that were doing this. Right, right. And so I think Tavistock looks at that as a pool of resource. And they keep an eye on them. And they watch for particular bands and they say, you know what, we think that band might work. So pay attention to them and let's start seeing if we can bring them into the fold. Let's see if we can start bringing them in. And other bands, they might look at and say, no, no, not them. So, you know, they don't become anything. Um, so I think that the Beatles from the very beginning were very much earmarked to do what it is that Tavistock ultimately planned to do with them, which was to make them this phenomenal music force. Mm. Uh, and they nurtured them along the way. I do not believe the story about them being turned down by Decca Records. I think that that's just a story that was told to us. Um, the Beatles were not, in a sense, organic at, at any point, maybe in the very, very beginning. But once they were being eyeballed, and as I mentioned, they were all Freemasons because otherwise they would not have received MBEs in 1966, um, they, were, they were pulled along. And once they got signed by EMI, 
then all bets were off as far as anything being organic because EMI has a long history of being tied into Tavistock and British intelligence. And then, of course, they were assigned to George Martin as their producer. That was, you know, that wasn't just picking a name out of a hat. Yeah. This is all very, very calculated. And uh, so, you know, they they took these four guys that were playing in, you know, nightclubs and, you know, some pretty rough places, especially in Germany, and they polished them up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all of the screaming girls and all that stuff. I mean, it's known now that most of the uh, these girls that were screaming and yelling were bust in in order to create the um, the demand the illusion of yeah, the illusion of it yeah. and so mm-hmm. what happens is you know you initially bring it in and then human behavior being what it is other people follow suit so you no longer had to bus them in or pay people now people were driving there for free screaming their heads off you know, so it right. it caught on. So the Beatles it fulfilled itself. <laughs> the, it, it was exactly, a self fulfilling prophecy, sort of. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So the Beatles, I don't think, were ever truly, truly organic. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that they were always controlled. Uh, I think they themselves in the beginning didn't know that. I believe that they felt like, hey, you know, we're getting a big break and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned earlier, they got a, a lot of help uh, by at least, at the very least, by George Martin. But, right, and he, but, who was, a, I think, a genius producer yeah, in yeah. his own right. Yeah. And, and who else that we don't even know of? Because there's so Perfect. many players yeah. in this game, guys, that these people, we don't, we'll never know their names. These are people that are essentially, you know, behind the curtain. Uh, so we don't know who they are. I mean, people like, you know, um, uh, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall, these were all, you know, Handlers. These are people that mm-hmm. were part of the process of steering and managing the group. I'm not saying they're there bad were, people. That, that, that was their job. That was their job, yeah. There was a guy that they referred to as Maxwell, um, who I think was a handler. He, he may have been MI5 or MI6, maybe, who, who I think was involved in this, too. We didn't even get to that, but um, yeah. which is where Maxwell's Silver Hammer comes from um, yeah. on, um, on Abbey Road. Uh, what about Epstein? What do you think Brian Epstein fits into the whole thing? Uh, Epstein was a Freemason too, and again, um, there's people going to be screaming at their uh, speakers right now um, because they don't want to believe okay. that. That's okay. We've had, <laughs> we've had okay. that before. No, let them scream. Uh, We're okay with that. Trust me, I've got thick skin. Um, but he <laughs> was—he was a Freemason, and uh, there's no way he could not have been, considering what we've just gone through. Uh, in fact, in the book, um, Bill says that uh, when uh, biological Paul passed away, that uh, his uncle. Uh, Bill's uncle, and uh, we believe his uncle's name is Albert. That's where we get the song Uncle Albert. Right. He was right. a That's, very, yeah. very high-level Freemason, mm-hmm. and he made a call to George Martin, and he told George Martin that this is the new guy. This is who you're going to put in the slot there. So when George Martin uh, finally caught up with, like it was like a day later, he initially couldn't catch up with uh, Brian Epstein. He was out of pocket. Um, he caught up with him the next day, and he started to tell him that we're going to be putting this guy in in place of uh, Paul. Brian said, "Hey, I already, you know, I already know. I already got the call." So, so h- how did Brian Epstein get the call? Brian Epstein got the call because Brian Epstein's in the club. He was in the yeah. club. Yeah. Yeah. So Epstein was in it, and I think that um, Epstein's influence started to wane once uh, Bill came on board because. Um, 
Bill was the uh, the de facto manager of the Beatles once he once he joined the band back in late 1966 is when he came in. Pepper was kind of came in and took control, didn't he? I mean, he took because Lennon was sort of the sort of the leader, you know, originally. I think that was um, Bill's demand. Some sense, yeah. Yeah, Bill said uh, he would not do this unless he had total control of the band. So, yeah, so Billy took over, and uh, and two months after Pepper was released, back in June 1st, 1967, June 1st, right, six times one is six, so back to six again. Uh, and Please Please Me, by the way, was released on March 22nd, you know, three times 22 is 66. Mm-hmm. Uh, two months after uh, the release of Sgt. Pepper, Brian Epstein dies of, of an overdose, an alleged overdose. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that don't believe that, you know, it was uh, an overdose. They believe that his death was very mysterious um so i think that you know they just didn't need brian epstein in the picture anymore because uh the guy that was doing his job is now in the band yeah that makes sense um getting back to the original event where supposedly the biological paul was was killed or, or died um do you think that was an accident per se or do you think that was orchestrated um because he was showing some signs of not following the script or, or something like that what, what's your what's your feeling on that yeah that is um that is a very good question and one that um is very difficult to answer yeah i know i'm, I'm just i just thought maybe you might that's have what walt answer. does well walt, walt I, asks I believe difficult that, questions uh, it's possible that something uh nefarious took place and let me just mm-hmm. i'll take you through some dates and the audience can draw their own conclusions and well that's yeah that's part of it if you kind of look at the dates and when it happened yeah. and all those things it's kind of weird you know yeah so if you, the dates so this comes out of memoir so bill gives us all the dates so paul is in a car crash late in the evening on sunday september 11th 1966 mm-hmm. and he passes away brian epstein meets bill shepherd on the next day september 12th and brings him on board now shepherd was also known as building pepper mm-hmm. uh Amongst other things, we talked about Ackroll and Vivian Stanshall. A la, a la Dr. Pepper. <laughs> well, Sergeant I mean, Pepper. I'm not Dr. Pepper, Pepper. Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, yeah Sergeant right. Pepper. That's kind of curious, too. But anyway, so go ahead. So you have um, Epstein sends Lennon a telegram. Epps, uh, in the book, they say that Lennon was in Paris. That was on Tuesday, September 13th, 1966. Mm-hmm. Uh, Epstein introduces Bill to John on Friday, September 16th, 1966. That's five days later in Paris, France. And uh, so when they meet, Shepard has a list of demands, and the biggest one being that he leads the Beatles going forward. He said they weren't going to do any more love songs, you know, Boy Loves Girl, I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You. He was going to take the band in a different direction. Uh, Lennon was in, du- in duress, and so he agrees to relinquish control. And then uh, Bill became the new leader of the Beatles, and Sgt. Pepper was his debut album. So that's how it transpired. So, you know, Paul dies the evening of uh, September 11th, 1966. That's a Sunday. And then the following Friday, uh, Bill's in a room with Brian Epstein and John Lennon in France. So, I don't know, you tell me. Well, it's kind of curious that all of those things would sort of be waiting in the wings, you know. I mean, if it was just a pure accident, you'd have to think that you know, everybody would be scrambling to to try to figure out what they're going to do. You know, I mean, number one, are you going to try try to keep it from getting reported on? You know, which is a big thing right there in itself. Um, you know, I've seen. Have Have you ever 
notice there's a, there's a picture of the Aston Martin apparently that that um, biological Paul was supposedly driving, um, and it's you know it's really wrecked. Apparently he was decapitated. Um, that's what the reports are anyway. I guess. Right. Is that, 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 that's the theory. He was decapitated. That's yes. the theory. But the, you can see the last I think three three numbers or three letters on the license plate. I wonder if anybody's ever traced that to to see. Um, or if you even could, I don't know. It just, just kind of crossed my mind. I don't know whether you knew anything about that. But that would kind of tell you whose car it was anyway. That doesn't necessarily say that he was in it, but, you know, or if that's even actually the picture of the car. You don't, this is all stuff you don't really know. But, that's you know. the problem. The problem yeah. is, is that they cover all bases. So, I mean, they'll, yeah. they'll put you, they'll give you clues like that. They'll give you license plates and then people go mm-hmm. off chasing rabbits down rabbit holes. Yeah, it's got dis- disinformation, them. sort of. Yeah, disinformation. You know, some people yeah. believe it wasn't even uh, that car; that was another car mm-hmm. um, that was in- involved in the accident. So, it, that whole that whole piece of it is very sketchy. You know, and of course, like I mentioned earlier in the show, some yeah. people believe that he, he didn't even die in a car crash; it was some other way that he died. But who knows? Yeah, you know? that, was, that was all made up. Maybe who knows? Yeah, it's hard to say. But um, apparently, what it looks like is that you know this guy was sort of groomed. To take over now. What did they have to do to him? Um, I've seen some pictures of him when he was doing the, um, what was it, Billy and the Pepper Pots thing that was back. Um, I don't know when was that in the early sixties or very early sixties. Yeah, it, it was he, going into the Beatle period, sixty three, sixty four. Yeah. yeah, he was actually doing some Beatle covers. He was he was singing um, on some of the albums that he did. Yes, um, I want to hold your hand. I think or was it, and he had his own his own songs too so so apparently he was a songwriter to begin with um and he was familiar with singing beatles type material um what did they have to do to him what you know in your opinion what did they, you think they had to do to him physically to sort of get him to look you know in the in the ballpark anyway i mean or did he resemble him to to a high degree to begin with no he didn't resemble him really much at all and um so what they had to do was there was extensive um, plastic surgery that was done. Recon- I call it reconstructive surgery. It mm-hmm. wasn't a facelift. So they had to reconstruct his face. And this is why there are multiple Paul McCartneys. We can get into that maybe a little bit too because people always ask me that question. And in the book he says he's the one with the permanent contract, but there were others who stepped in to play the part. And the oh, others that stepped okay. in to play the part, that. yeah, the others that stepped in to play the part would have been when he was having surgery. So ah. there, was, there was surgery, there were fillers, they had to fill out his face a little bit um, because uh, his, Bill's normal face is uh, longer than Paul's. Paul kind of had a kind of a rounder type of face mm-hmm. and Bill's face is a more- baby face, o- sort of pudgy oval. kind of face, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, they, also used, um, they also used latex. And, um, I actually have two clips, two video clips of uh, proof that latex was used. Um, so, and he says this in the book. I mean, he, he says surgeries, fillers, and latex were used. So that's how they did it. And um, along with others that filled in here and there to play Paul. And uh, one of the things that I did, guys, was uh, going back when I first got into this back in 2016 was I put a collage together of uh, the many faces of Paul McCartney over time. And when you take a look at Paul McCartney over time, you're going to see that there are very different characters playing the part. It's it's not the same person. It's certainly not the person that we know as biological Paul. Mm-hmm. 
So that means that there were a number of uh, people playing uh, the character of Paul McCartney. I well, Bill Shepard is older too, right? Isn't he? I think like five years older or something. Five years like that. older. Yeah, I think yeah. I figured out his birthday too when I I wrote to Tom and Tom hadn't gotten back to me. So that either means that Tom's too busy, or, or you're right. Back to me, or I'm right. <laughs> or so, you're right on. Yeah. It's funny. I, it's- I um I worked with a lady whose daughter I think lived in Arizona, and and um the the guy that we think of as Paul McCartney who I think is really Bill Shepard um she she saw him he has a ranch in Arizona I think or something um and she saw him walking around downtown wherever the town is I don't know where it is and she said she saw this guy and and um you know he looked really old like really old and and she was trying to figure out there was people stopping and talking to him and asking him for autographs probably and and so she said who who is that old guy and somebody said oh that's paul mccartney he has a ranch you know outside of town and he comes into town every once in a while um and you know so that's kind of kind of funny but i mean he is old he's he's get you know even if he was the real paul mccartney he's, he'd have to be really pretty old at this point in his what like mid-70s i guess or something but yeah um, bill is 81 oh he's 81 okay so um and you know i saw a recent picture of of him and um, a plastic surgeon weighed in on it, and he said his face now shows the signs of of older plastic surgery. It's all kind of drooping and sagging, and yes. and you know he looks he looks really bad. I mean, he looks. I don't judge him, but you know he looks really old. He doesn't. But when you see him on TV and stuff, he looks. You know they kind of put a lot of makeup on him. I'm sure, but um, it it just is curious that he, you know, and like if you look at Ringo. Ringo would probably be about the same age as uh, as the original Paul. Yeah, maybe he was a few years older, I guess. I think Paul right. was actually the youngest one. But um, he, you know, he doesn't look that bad. I mean, he he looks okay. Uh, but Mc, the the guy that's playing McCartney looks you know looks like a real old man. You know, and so I don't know. There's another sign, I guess. Maybe, but, your, no. your skin loses its elasticity, and so the, yes. the doctor, of course, is absolutely right. I mean, after all those years of fillers and surgeries and stuff like that, this it doesn't hold together. Yeah. And so, if you take a look at the pictures today, you could see, like, you know, they did something with his chin. You see, you can see they did something along his cheek area. Um, and, and I believe his birthday is September 9th, 1937, and that's why um, he's so focused on uh, September 9th. And so, which means that he'll be 81 years old uh, this September 9th. And I was told that um, additional, well, this is what I was told, um, is more proof so people can listen to the show and see that, you know, there is inside information coming forth. He's going to be consolidating his websites that will be effective this September 9th. So, there's some websites he has out there, they're going to be consolidated. Um, I was also told that um, there there are other projects in the works. One of them is very extensive about him, and it will probably be released after he passes away. But another key uh, date is September 9th of 2020, so two years from now. And I believe that there's going to be uh, a substantial amount of disclosure, maybe not total disclosure, because I'm told that total disclosure can only come after he passes away. But mm-hmm. I believe that we're getting, we'll get really, really close to like maybe 90% of disclosure on September 9th of 2027. And the reason why that date is so important because 9 September, the day 9, 2027, if we take the last two digits, 27, add them together, it's nine. So it's another triple nine. Um, and he's also, he would be 90 years old. So another nine. 
Wow. You know, it's funny. I, I went <clears throat> I went back and I read the uh, – I don't know if you, you – you, I'm sure have read it. The interview with John Lennon that, that um, he did with Playboy right before he was actually pretty close to when he was killed, I think. Yeah, I read it a long um, time ago. Yeah. Yeah. You should go back and read it again. There's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, yeah, I had read it, I think, when it originally came out. And, of course, at that time, it was just you know, John Lennon talking, you know. Um, but, but he really – um, cast a lot of disparity on on what you know what he's saying is Paul um, in terms of his songwriting and um, you know he he's he's he was saying that he added Lennon added a lot of the um, the edginess to the songs he called it the bluesy edge um, and McCartney sort of provided the poppy kind of you know, sing songy, good time kind of feel to it, which makes a lot of sense. Um, and but he also said that you know McCartney would show up at his door. You probably remember that part of it, and and just like any time of the night or day with his guitar and try to ask John to help him out with a song. Till this is when John lived in Dakota, and you know he had his, you know he was going through his phase where he was doing his child rearing, and you know he didn't really want to didn't really want to do that anymore. So so one day he had to just tell him, you know, just hey Paul, just you know, or or fall. He might have called him fall or Bill. I don't know. Uh, I said just at least call when you you know before you're going to come. You know, just show up and. Um, so, so there was a lot of kind of subtle clues in there. He he really disparaged um, the the music after the Beatles that Paul had produced with Wings and the solo stuff. He actually said that the last good song that he wrote was "Long and Winding Road." Um, so, yeah. you know, if you look at that, like you said, there's there's always some kind of underlying message there if you really get past what he's actually saying, you know. Uh, so I, I just found that kind of interesting going back and looking at that with a with a little bit different of of an eye toward toward that kind of thing, you know. Well, so, John John uh, spills the beans in the song "How Do You Sleep," so um, I would recommend that everybody listening to the show go back and listen mm -hmm. to the song "How Do You Sleep." Uh, he lays it all out there. In fact, uh, in the book, uh, Bill says that he was a big fan of, um, of a genre of music, which was called Boogaloo, which is uh, mm. Latin music and dance, which was popular here in the United States in the 1960s. And mm. they, used to, they used to have a nickname for him. They used to call him Boogaloo. And so Ringo released the song Back Off Boogaloo. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's right. That so these sense. are all, yeah, these are all little clues that are out there, and these clues they, you know, they persisted even after uh, the Beatles broke up. Um, I just released a um, uh, a clip from the Martin Scorsese uh, George uh, Harrison documentary, Living in the Material World, where there's a scene uh, toward the latter part of the documentary where uh, George is sitting on a couch, and Bill comes in. And uh, George says, hello, William. It's uh, good. How, how have you been? It's good to see you again. Now, you know, that was left in the uh, in the documentary. And that was left in the documentary for a reason. That didn't slip by people who were editing. Oh, no, I'm sure not. Yeah. Right. So they're telling you, they're telling you his name mm -hmm. is William. So the Beatles knew him as Bill, William. There's another clip of... Uh, of Lennon and George Harrison having lunch at the Dakota where Yoko was serving tea and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they talk about Beetle Bill. Yes, I you saw know. that. Where they were, uh, Lennon was working on Imagine or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it was, he was working on that. 
either yeah. song or album and and yeah i heard i saw that where he he called him bill bill the beetle or something like that and, and, and i don't think the, they uh, liked i don't think the other beatles liked him very much it seemed um i don't think ring ringo's never really ever weighed on in on it very much has he well, no, I mean, he did the song Back Off Boogaloo, and uh, he had the song um, I'm the Greatest on um, on his Ringo album back in 1973, where he's definitely talking about Bill. Uh, but Ringo did it in kind of subtle ways. You know, George Harrison clearly did, did not have any love for him. This was very clear in the 1980s. He always seemed to be uh, taking a shot at him. It didn't get better until they, you know, they got together and they did the anthology stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think that there was a um, there was a terse relationship. Uh, in the book, he says that the relationship between him and John was very up and down. There were times when he and John got along. Yeah, there it goes again. We we just lost the signal again. So um, yes, yeah, so I think you guys there. Yeah, no, here. we just we just okay. lost the signal again. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, what I wa- I also wanted to interject here is that Ringo has been very vocal um, so far this year. I think there's one big, huge news story where he came right out and he said, oh, yeah, you know, the original Paul McCartney died back in the 60s. And uh, Bill or whoever he is or, or Paul McCartney II came out and said, why are you doing that? I mean, the rumors are already rampant. Why, why feed into that? And Ringo just kind of like shrugged it off. Do you think that Ringo has pretty much had enough and he's just now he's just letting it all loose and he's just letting it all out and he's not waiting for the, for the right time? He wants to get the word out now. Well, I, I, there was, there's one there's one uh, news article that's out there that is a hoax. So we have to be careful about that. Okay. Yeah, I think that is a hoax. That is I a hoax. OK. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah, so you have to be careful with that one. I think Ringo Ringo. Um, there's a reason why Ringo got knighted so late. And he just just got it just like, you know, what, about a month ago or so. Uh, And I think it's because, you know, he did come out with songs like uh, Back Off Boogaloo and stuff like that. And I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just surmising here. But I I think he ventured too much into the, uh, you know, into a place or a space that he really shouldn't have ventured into. I think they looked at that as a a direct affront. And um, so... The way these uh, societies work, too, is you, they'll put you in the penalty box. Now, they won't put you in the penalty box. It won't be like, oh, you know, next week. They'll wait years and years and years. So I think in the case of Ringo, what they did was they really delayed his being knighted for a very, very long time. Um, now, some people will say, well, that's because his contribution wasn't as significant as the other Beatles. Well, the other Beatles, well, John and George couldn't be knighted because they died. But if... If they had lived, I'm sure they would have been knighted um, early on. Um, but I, I think Ringo paid a little bit of a price. I don't know if he was that quiet about it. With Ringo, you had to kind of read between the lines with a lot of his stuff. Um, there was one, I read one article where when the Beatles were dissolving and there were certain uh, demands that were being made, this is when they were fighting between who was going to manage the Beatles' financials, was it going to be Alan Klein or was it going to be the, the Eastmans, which was you know Linda's family, who were prominent lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so the other three Beatles, they had drawn up a document and um, they were going to send it registered or certified mail. And Ringo said, no, it's okay, look, I, I'll just deliver it, okay? I don't want the guy to get something through the mail 
we've the three of us have come up with this. Let me deliver it. And the way the story goes, and this is actually told by Bill himself, when Ringo showed up and handed them the letter, and when Bill read the letter, Bill had become infuriated, and Bill had said that he was so, so angry. He said it didn't come to blows, but he said it almost got to the point where he was going to get physical with Ringo during this encounter. All Ringo was doing, uh, happy old Ringo, was Mm -hmm. saying, I don't want to insult the guy by having it done through the mail. Let me drive it over to his house. But that's how much animosity there there was at that time. People don't have insights into things like this. And of course, there was the the famous conversation between Bill and um, and George during Let It Be, you know, where Bill is trying to explain to George how we should play his guitar. And you could tell George was like, look, I'll play whatever you want me to play. If you don't want me to play, I can do that too. I'll do whatever it is that pleases you. Mm-hmm. And I've always told people that is not how two guys that were childhood friends would speak to each other unless something really, really went south or really went bad. So, you know, he was he was the outsider. He was he was the outsider, no doubt about it. Well, also Harrison never got his really what I considered his fair share of songs on each, you know, he'd get maybe one or two songs and right. and, Len- and Ringo would get maybe one kind of silly song and then the other guys would get the rest. Um, so I, I think there was maybe some resentment about that. But so, so do you think the, the really the real reason why the Beatles broke up? I mean, you hear all this stuff about John and Yoko and, and all this stuff and, and Linda and Paul and blah, blah, blah. Do you think the real reason is that they got sick and tired of Bill Shepard? Um, calling all the shots and controlling the whole thing because, you know, it's pretty clear when you, when you look at um, starting in 66 with um, Sergeant Pepper, I mean, that's a clear departure from what the Beatles were doing previous to that. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like a total transformation, you know, which is to me is another good clue as to what really went on. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a groundbreaking album. It's a wonderful piece of genius work i think so you know if he's responsible for that and and that's one of the things lennon said in that interview was that that was paul's baby you know that was paul's idea the, the whole sergeant pepper thing so you know it, it all just makes sense when you start thinking about it so so do you think maybe that's the real reason why the beatles broke up i'm again i'm asking for your opinion but um well in the book um shepherd says that he was the one who decided to break the beatles up um, it didn't have anything really to do with Yoko. That was all. Um, that was just all a cover story. Listen what had stuff, happened? Yeah. yeah <clears throat> what happened was it just got to the point where they couldn't work together anymore. There was it was just too much hard feelings. It was too much animosity. And quite honestly, they had uh, kind of broken away from that whole like mop top thing. You know, Lennon oh, yeah. was off Yoko doing his avant garde stuff, and George was doing his thing, and so on. And they weren't a really the, the tight-knit band anymore. So, But I, I, my personal theory is, based upon the book and then, you know, doing additional research, tons of it, is that it was just time. It's just they were not a cohesive group mm-hmm. anymore. And so that's when they decided that they were going to do um, Abbey Road. Abbey Road was really their true last album uh, because Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road, um, mm-hmm. the, the video, sure. I mean, the film sort of piece piece together kind of right or, yeah and you could of. see and you could see and let it be that it just seemed to be all detached I mean, it was nothing you know cohesive about that film that didn't look mm-hmm. like they were enjoying each other's company and in some cases i remember one scene where bill is talking to john about you know going out and 
you know, playing live again. And, and they were sitting at a table and John's got a cigarette in his hand and he's got this look on his face of total boredom. Like, I All really right, don't really? want to be, yeah, I really don't want to be talking about this. And yeah. so, I mean, when, you, when you, you see that, you can see that there was a deterioration that, you know, the band, even the band as it existed two years prior, let's say going back to 67 and 68, that it wasn't the same band anymore. So Bill decided mm-hmm. to, you know, you know, fold his cards and pull the plug. And that was that. Yeah. I want to ask, you know, you, that's another, uh, that's another thing. I'm sorry. Um, just wanted to touch on the fact that, um, 66, I believe was when they stopped touring, right? Was that when they came out and said, um, yeah, Brian Epstein, you know, that we can we, I mean, and I bought it at the time. They, I think they said that, um, you know, they couldn't reproduce on live what they were doing in the studio. So they just, and there was too much noise from the crowd screaming and they couldn't hear themselves and which I bought, it sounded logical, but I, you know, I, I think part of it was they were covering up the fact that, you know, biological Paul was not there anymore and it was a new guy. Is, is that something you think too, or? Uh? I think both things are true. I, I, I do believe that it was becoming more difficult for them to play live because even yeah, if well, you go back to revolver, sense. how are you going to replicate tomorrow? Never knows or some of the songs there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, when you got to Pepper, back in the day, in 1967, there really was no way to replicate that. You would have to have an entire orchestra show up, right, to to, um, to be yeah. able to put the show on. So I think that, you know, that was true. But it was it was very convenient to have that situation because it also gave them the ability to give Bill time to, to go through the surgeries, to have the fillers, and to assimilate into the band. So I think it, it was a dual type of... Uh, approach that was taking mm-hmm. place well he's supposed to be taller too isn't he than the, the yes. biological pool which yeah a couple inches i think right yep you can see that with pictures with jane asher oh. uh, paul's girlfriend yes you know, paul's about the same size as jane asher maybe a mm-hmm. tiny bit taller but bill was much taller than jane asher mm-hmm. so that would kind of be obvious too when they were playing in concert anybody had seen them before you know would say hey how do you get tall i mean he was like yeah. 20, he would have been like 24 so the chances of him growing two inches is a little, a little weird, but you know. Uh, did you have, did you have a question, Eric? You wanted to get well, in? no. I what, what I wanted to sort of interject here is is that you look at George Harrison's body of work, where you can actually see a switch was flipped after the Beatles broke up. George Harrison released this uh, this album, All Things Must Pass, which is an obvious um, nod to the Beatles breaking up. But he had this huge volume of work that he released, like the two albums. He released the two albums almost immediately after the Beatles broke up. What was it? Maybe a year, a year and a half. And it was, you could tell that this was um, song upon song that he must have been working on while he was still in the Beatles. And he, he just let, released this huge thing as if to say... You know, hey, listen, I was talented too, but here's this other guy, Johnny Come Lately, Bill shows up, pushes all of us out of the way. This is what I could have given the group over the past couple of years. I still could have contributed music. So here you go. Do you think that there was a lot of sort of like sort of sticking it to the middle finger not just to 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 bill or whatever his name is but also to the establishment who were playing this game not only to the fans of the beatles but also john ringo and george yeah he george had a backlog of material and um that's why when he came out with all things must pass i mean he just had 
you know, he had song after song after song. And um, I do believe that George was, uh, well, I, I know that George was not happy with his allocation of songs. Now, the allocation of songs really was determined by the management and the, and the label itself. So, and, and he understood that from a contractual perspective. It's written into the contracts what their, their, their song contributions or the, the number of songs are going to be. So he was very restricted. I, I also find it very interesting and almost humorous that on Abbey Road, George had two songs, of course. He had Here Comes the Sun and Something, which arguably some could say are the two best songs on the album. So that was really the the Beatles swan song album, uh, Abbey Road. And on that album, George Harrison really, you know, he hit a home run. So uh, I think that that was an indication of what George was capable of. I think they're clearly the two most played songs. You know, yeah. I think you hear them more than, than a lot of the other songs on there. Um, well, that's another thing, the whole Abbey Road cover where they, you know, they were supposedly depicting a funeral um that was you know that was something weird that that um bill said on the on the um letterman show he was talking about that because because Le, um, letterman asked him about it and he said oh yeah it was really hot and i was wearing sandals and and then i kicked him off at the last minute so that didn't make sense no. i mean if it was really hot and the street was really hot why would you want bare feet <laughs> right you know that just that just didn't jive i don't know what he where he was going with that but um that's part of the masterful yeah. speaking. So what he's telling you, yeah, is, yeah. he's telling you something that doesn't make sense. So if somebody's mm -hmm. listening, they would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't walk on a hot pavement in bare right, feet. You'd rather right. have your sandals on. Yeah. What? That's part of the disclosure. That's part of him telling you, that does it make sense. sense, does it? And you're going to say no. And he's going to go, what would make sense? So that's part of it. And of course, you know, and, and most of the people in, in, the, in the audience, uh, you know, they're sitting there giggling and clapping and laughing and thinking, you know, that uh, it makes sense. So for those who have ears and for, for those who have eyes to see, they're going to hear and, and see the truth. And believe it or not, as deceptive as all of this is, he is trying to, to put it out there, but he has to do it in a way in which he doesn't jeopardize his own his own life. Uh, I don't mean in, in a, you know in a way of death or anything, but uh, from his financial securities, which have extended to his children. So in the book, he claims that he has to make sure that this all stays in place for his kids too. I know his his uh, I guess it was his second wife, the one that he divorced and got a, she got a pretty big chunk of money from him. Had she's, yeah, she's she's said a couple times. Uh, um, I don't know if it was on record or not, but that you know. He, she was going to let his secret out or, or something like that. I, I, I don't I don't know the exact quote, but she's I guess this was when they were going through this contentious divorce that they had. So she kind of put out there the fact that she knew something that, um, <clears throat> you know, everybody else didn't know. But whether that was just because she was angry or whatever, who knows? And it could have been other stuff, too. You know, that, who knows what kind of stuff he did? I, I you know, I, it's funny. I remember and I don't know how much more time we have with you, Mike, but um, I'll keep going. Planned on, but um yeah. I, I remember reading an article. It was actually a. It was written by a, a young woman that had spent the night with Paul McCartney, um, and I, I don't remember the exact time frame, um, and I can't even remember what magazine. It, I think it was in a men's magazine, like We or one of those magazines that don't even get published anymore. I tried to find it online and I couldn't. But 
she um i guess he picked her up somewhere and, and i guess he he was quite notorious for that and uh, in his early days and um she painted a picture of him as being a um, very very nasty person i mean he was he was very nasty to her she didn't get into the you know the particulars of their night together but um you know he just he basically after in the morning he just basically kicked her out of the house and um now i don't know whether this was um the biological paul or or the billy shepherd paul I, I can't remember the time frame but i just remember at the time thinking wow that's not the image i have of of paul mccartney you know i you kind of always thought of him as being you know kind of a joke joking around and kind of a you know loosey-goosey kind of fun guy you know and, th and this was a very dark dark um picture of him I wish I could. I wish I could dredge up the particulars on that, but but that always stuck in my mind. Like, there's something's weird about this. It's just not the Paul McCartney that I that I thought of. You know, I, and I don't. I don't know if you're familiar with that article or not. And I wish. I wish I could re relocate it. But yeah, I'm not familiar with the article, but I can tell you that if it's Bill Shepard, um, he has a, a reputation for being uh, a, a sour type of. Uh, mm -hmm personality that he could be very biting sarcastic um very arrogant um and you and, and you could see this too uh, if you watch his interviews very closely um there's, there's always this arrogance this this air about him in which he has this very uppity uh type of body language um I, i've picked up on it a lot of people have picked up on it you know and then if you take a look at the body language and the demeanor of biological paul it's very very different it's very mm -hmm. different yeah so that i hadn't uh, seen that article i don't recall reading it but does it surprise me based upon other things that i know and uh, other research that i've done no it does not yeah. I, I just struck me and I remembered it when I started looking into a lot of stuff that at the time I read it and I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe she was just trying to get back at him or something, you know, but it was it was very it just didn't fit the image that I had of Paul McCartney, you know, so I don't know, maybe yeah. maybe it got squashed or something. I don't know, but uh, I'd like to be able to dredge it up anyway. Um, so um, I guess we can probably start to wrap things up. You, you probably have a lot of time considerations to, to deal with, but do you? Do you think there's an actual smoking gun here? I mean, something that's kind of irrefutable. Um, and I know that's a tough question, um, but you've done so much research into this. You, you have just such a wealth of knowledge on this topic. Is there any one thing that you think is, I mean, I know there's all kinds of uh, DNA tests and things that have been done. Um, I guess Paul had an illegitimate child by a woman in Hamburg. Yeah. Um, and the DNA test didn't didn't match Um the Tina yeah, Hubers, the, yeah, the, the the child's DNA, and then he was he was a he was um, stopped in Japan. I guess he was going through customs, and he had marijuana, and there was some discrepancy about his fingerprints. Um, yes, you know, does any does any of that stuff, you know, is that the is that the real evidence, or or is there anything else that you've uncovered I, you know, since since you've been doing this? I guess. I think it's real evidence from the standpoint of if you're doing the research and you connect the dots, you realize that you know, these things are, in fact, evidence. And we have uh, the voice print analysis from 1969. There was a professor, Dr. Henry Truby, from the University of Miami, and he published the fact that the new and old Paul have different voice prints. They call them sonograms, proving 
they cannot be the same person. And I believe the songs that they compared were um, Yesterday versus Penny Lane and then Yesterday versus Hey Jude. Mm -hmm. And this was published in Life magazine and it went absolutely nowhere. And you're right, his arrest in January of 1980 in Japan, by the way, he was incarcerated for nine days. We've got the number nine back again. (laughs) Wow, Uh, I didn't know that. (laughs) There you go. Yep, he had different fingerprints and he received the fingerprints from Interpol because... Uh, biological Paul, and maybe it was with Stu Sutcliffe at the time, they had set a fire back in Hamburg. It was a small fire, and they had gotten arrested, and you know they, they were fingerprinted and so on. So the Japanese, through Interpol, had the original fingerprints. Ah. Huh. And so, so they had a, sort of a small record that they were relying on. Small record, right. Yeah. And so the, uh, the Japanese interrogated him, and uh, they figured out he was not Paul McCartney, but an imposter. And in order for him to get out of that situation... Uh, the British government in Scotland Yard had to intercede. And uh-huh. that's how he got out of there. And the paternity lawsuit with um, um, Bettina Hubers, who would be um, the the daughter, uh, her mother was Erica Hubers, that was a, uh, a big issue. Uh, they finally had to uh, uh, back out of that lawsuit because my understanding is, is that uh, there was a statute of limitations had expired and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And in the book, Bill says that whenever these situations come up, he claims that biological Paul, he was, you know, he was quite the ladies' man. And uh, so he uh, has some some kids out there. Um, Summer kids. Out of wedlock. Yeah, some kids. And um, that Bill, if uh, if it ever comes up, uh, you know, being accused of being the father and not paying child support. It's just going to let the DNA speak for itself because he knows the DNA is not going to match. And so what's going to happen is nobody's going to question that he's not Paul McCartney. They're just going to say that the person uh, pursuing the lawsuit is a liar. <laughs> right. right. Didn't, didn't actually get impregnated by him. Right. Somebody but else, the, yeah. biggest, the biggest clue of all that I would recommend that people do is to take a look at the pictures of Paul McCartney over time. So go back to 1963, 64, 65, and go take a look at what biological Paul looks like, what he looked like. And then just year by year, take it 67, 8, 9, 70, all the way to current time. And you will see that there were many, many different faces. So the way they were able to pull this off was back in the day, we didn't have the internet, you know, so we could sit there and copy and paste and put pictures of faces next to each other to compare. So people... They, he was, people just said, well, that's Paul McCartney because the news magazine or the, the news article in Life magazine, whatever, says that's Paul McCartney. Um, the album says it's the Beatles and it says that's Paul McCartney. They're doing an interview and they're saying that's Paul McCartney. So people just look at it at that moment in time and they say that's Paul McCartney. But when you compare it over a timeline, you can clearly, clearly see, unless you just don't want to see it, you'll clearly see that it's... A different person, in fact, different persons, plural, like I said, because there was more than one person playing the part of Paul McCartney over time, although Bill has a permanent contract. Mm-hmm. I, so I guess another way to look at it is that, you know, the person that's now playing Paul McCartney, it's kind of an, a role, like almost like an actor would play. Right. Um, he, he actually is the character of Paul McCartney. I mean, he, he is, in essence, Paul McCartney. He's not the biological Paul McCartney, but he's what we think of as Paul McCartney. So, you know, it's 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 that deep-rooted, that it's that deep into people's psyche now that, you know, and a lot of people are probably going to, you know, scoff at, 
you know, after they listen to this and say, oh, you know, it's, this is a bunch of crap. But you've, you've got so much um, evidence and, you know, you've mastered, you're, you have such a mastery of this information that, you know, after hearing this, I don't, I don't know how you can not at least take a, take a, a different look at the whole thing. Take a closer, longer so, look at it all and just yeah, say, really, really. and just say, you look at this and you can't help but wonder who else are they doing this to? Because well, it, yeah. in my yeah. search for, in the show notes, it apparently the same thing has sort of happened with Avril Lavigne. Whereas people are claiming that the woman who claims to be Avril Lavigne now is not the same as Avril Lavigne from maybe 10 years ago. And there's the other aspect of all of this is that you could just say that, well, fame changes people physically and emotionally, mentally, maybe even spiritually in that, oh, well, of course, you know, with the hard living that he's, he's been doing for the past 50 years, well, of course, he's going to look like a dirty old man walking down the street. But you, you look at, you know, um, celebrities who have emotional and mental breakdowns. Perfect example is Britney Spears. Britney Spears, what was it, maybe 10 years ago when she shaved her head and she just went like, yep. like bat guano crazy? Uh, could that have anything to do with what's going on with Paul McCartney and the reason why? I mean, but the the Paul McCartney that we see now today maybe it maybe it, it is the same Paul McCartney and he's just had a couple emotional breakdowns is that at all possible is there any explanation for why his face looks the way it does or his voice has changed over the years I've heard a change in my voice by just simply doing the podcast for the past ten years a lot of significant changes um, is is there any plausible explanation why Paul McCartney of today is so different than Paul McCartney from 1966? Well, it's, it's not the same guy. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I know, but is there, that's, that's about as plausible as you I, can get. I, I think what I'm looking for is, or is for people who do not want to believe this. Is there any wiggle room for them? Is there any escape hatch or is this, you absolutely totally believe 100% there's no way that you cannot believe that that is not the same guy. Well, I've reached the point where it's there's no question in my mind that it's not the same guy. Now, for each person, they're going to have to take a look at it themselves. And I've, you know, I get contacted by a lot of people and they tell me I'm crazy and all that stuff and but they're not looking at it. What happens is people have belief systems mm. and they have idols. And they worship these idols. And how many times you see, oh, Sir Paul, oh, Macca, we love you, you know. And so what happens is they don't want their, their bubble burst. That's really what it is at the end of the day. They don't want to believe that their reality has been fabricated for them. They don't want to believe that it's a grand illusion. And um, so if, if that's how you want to approach life, then that's, you know, that's your call. And it's your prerogative to live your life that way. But for others who want to really understand what this is really all about. When I say this, I'm talking about existence and our reality. You've got to look into these things. And um, yeah, I've had somebody ask me, well, you know, Mike, uh, you know, it, it could be him, right? I mean, you, you're not tossing the idea out that biological Paul just changed over time. Like, no, it's not the same guy, period. Mm -hmm. I said, you need to go take a look. You need to stop trying to convince yourself that it's not and if you really, really want to understand it, you need to go take a look at the research. Go look for yourself. Go buy the book. Go read the book. It's Start a, there. Yeah. 
It's a you know? and and you know the, the the bigger picture even for me, um, which what you know what I came away with from all this, a um, couple things actually, but um, you know how many things that we think of as hard and fast truth, you know, what, whatever that is, um, or, or just illusion, or just, or just things that are just created to make us believe a certain thing. And, and you know, some of the things you said today that, uh, you know, about um, the in, encrypted speech and things like that, 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 that just really struck me. Like, that's probably the biggest thing I came away from today, from, from what your message is, is that, you know, there's, there's alternative things being said here that, yes. you know, people just don't pick up on. And that's that's to me the, probably the most troubling aspect of it. Whether he's Paul or not is is you know it is what it is. But um, you know there's so many more things that could be affected by or or you know that are how our reality is affected by no, the, by Tavistock and and these other groups who are, who are you know pushing us toward their agenda in some sense. No, the know? most and, terrifying thing of all of this, Walt, is the fact that if they did it to Paul McCartney, who's to say that they couldn't do it with somebody else like the American president? Like the, no, like, it's, it's, like, like that ranch, movie really. Dave, where Kevin Klein played uh, an actor who replaced the president after the president had a stroke while having an extramarital affair. And the thing is, is that could hey i mean grant i i know it's just a movie but could somebody be saying hey this president had been replaced by an actor um it's like if they did it with paul mccartney they could have done it with um ronald reagan that's not they could have done it with bill clinton they could have done it anybody anybody in in power um and the thing is is that it's it's not that he had an accidental death they may have killed this person, whoever it is we're talking about, and replaced him with a doppelganger to get their way with the American people. That's another way that you could look at that, and that's that's terrifying. And it was just, if they're able to do that, then every then all reality is up for grabs. We're talking about you know the well, that's, moon, yeah, that's what I was getting the to moon landing who hoax. <laughs> who, who knows what you can hang your hat on? <laughs> I mean, who, who knows what the reality of anything is? Is is what it comes down to? And, and uh, I know that after talking to you today, Mike, I'm going to have a lot more awareness of what people say and how they say it. And you know, <laughs> it, it's just you know, it, it's just remarkable, really. Uh, the, the you know the the stuff you're coming out with here is is really very impressive. It's 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 quite a body of work you've accumulated on this on this topic, and I and I'm sure on other topics too. I want to yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Become a, I want to become a fan of your radio show too, and and I think a lot of our listeners are going to want to, um, you know, get in on some of the other stuff you're saying. I I know you have a lot of from listening to several of your interviews, you have a lot of other areas of interest, including raising the consciousness of the planet and the, and and having a more spiritual viewpoint on things, which you know, which is what we try to do too. With our, with our absolutely time. that's how yeah. we got the name metaphysical connection yeah that's really our main intention so um well we've kept you probably longer than you wanted to stay but um it's this is just so fascinating and interesting and we didn't even really cover the you know there, there's areas of it that we didn't even really get to um so uh i i can't thank you enough mike for 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 joining us today i was i was very excited when you when you responded to me and and you know agreed to come on so um, and come back come back and talk about that yeah. other stuff that you wanted to to, to cover whatever as you well. want to talk about you have a, you have an open invitation and um we're we're hoping that you know that some of our listeners will will carry on over to your show and, and maybe vice versa hopefully so 
No, I appreciate that. It was a, a great talk, guys. Um, it Good. was uh, freewheeling, which is what I like. Um, and I would love to come back anytime if you want to even follow up on more of this or any other topic that I get into. I'd be more than happy to. And uh, yeah, we can do that. You know what, okay. Walt, Walt, before we let um, Mike go here, um, we might actually have a, a special guest for um, our annual JFK assassination show that, that <laughs> Walt and I. That's another whole. Yeah, that's another whole topic on the Tavistock. There's a book. And if you're probably aware of it, it's called the Tavistock Institute. It's by Daniel Eschelin. Yes. Um, yeah, that's a great book. I, that's what really got me turned on to um, this whole topic. Which segues into the, you know, into the Beatles, and and you know, I have to say that my <laughs> my my fantasy about the Beatles being just these four young lads that came together and and had this magical alchemical reaction to each other's has been dashed on the rocks. But but well, that's okay. <laughs> it's like what John said: the dream is over. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Lennon Lennon really was the uh, was the the spiritual leader of the band, and, and I know Harrison got into spirituality too. But but Lennon, I think really, I think it pained him to to have all this stuff that he knew was going on and that he knew was wrong. You know, I think in some levels. I think John John walked <clears throat> off the reservation. So when he handed his MBE back in 1969, I think that was the <clears throat> beginning of the end for John. I think that I remember I said that they wait a long time. You know, mm -hmm. um, to to uh, even the score, and uh, and I'm not saying they killed him. You know, you know, we yeah. even though I, I'm not sure. I, I actually think they did, but yeah, you know, I mean, my, it's it's my it's it's possible. It's very possible, and only Damagard will tell you that they did. Uh, that they had an assassin from Operation Forty uh, actually mm -hmm. did the, um, the the, sh the shooting, but um, you know, John, I think walked off, and you know, he just didn't want any part of it anymore, and I think that was the beginning of his demise. Yeah, he couldn't. He just couldn't live with it anymore. I think you know it was. No, it was weighing on his soul. I think so to speak. You know. So, okay, Mike, we'll let you That's go. Enough. So it was a great, yeah. really great uh, conversation. Um, so we got two know, topics like to, now too. We, we got like two to topics. Kind of have it as a conversation, not you know. And I'm sure you don't want to just be the talking head. You know, I, it's it's good to have a lot of back and forth and uh, opens up some new new avenues, which maybe you you know haven't even considered. So, so that's what's good about it. So. Well, thank you, again. I enjoyed it very much. Okay, Mike, thanks a yeah, lot. And by, we'll, by, by the done. way, Mike, one, one more thing I'd like to also, um, if you have anything to say about um, John Lennon, um, we've not done an entire show on John Lennon. If you'd like to come back and talk to him on the anniversary of his, his, uh, his birth or his death, um, we'd love to have you. Well, I'd have to do some more research into John's assassination. I mean, I have begun that work. Mm -hmm. um, I have been, be yeah. Let me see where I go with the with the research on John because there's also I've I've told people that they were lookalikes and doubles for John too, even going back to the early days, and that really yeah I saw that too that there was some some yeah. thinking about that yeah yeah, yeah. they definitely double. were yeah. because you could see they had different noses you know John had a very distinctive nose and if you go back oh, yeah. to sixty four sixty five some of the the Johns didn't have that nose. That, that doesn't mean that the main John wasn't the main protagonist. He was. It just means that they had stand-ins. Uh, you know, yeah. it's just the way it works. So well, let, me, let me see how I progress with that, and I can get okay. back to you guys. Okay, Mike, thanks. Appreciate All right, it. guys. Great, great show. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. 
You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them. Yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on.